Cord, just to do a sound check here. Okay. Let me ask you, what did you have for breakfast this morning? <laughs> I had, what did I have? It seems like so long ago. Um, fruit, eggs, uh, my, you know, my uh, breakfast of champions. Yeah, that sounds pretty promising. That's better than other answers I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Tim. Welcome to We're Only Human, a podcast of stories of ordinary people welcoming change into their life. Sometimes that change is our own doing. Sometimes that change barrels into our lives, whether we like it or not. This isn't a three-minute interview that you see on your favorite late-night talk show. We're going deep here. We're going deep into who we are and how we grow. And we're often asking questions that my guests have not been asked before. The goal is simple. We can learn from each other. We're not perfect. We're not alone. We're only human. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Daria Long. She's a mother, a wife, a daughter, an ER doctor, also a clinical assistant professor at the University of Tennessee School of Medicine, and also author of the best-selling book, Mom Hacks. And I've seen you, Dr. Daria, have been described as the make life women, or I'm sorry, make life better for women doctor. I thought that was a cool description I saw. <laughs> But I actually discovered you from your TEDx talk, How to Triage Your Life Like an ER Doctor. And I, first of all, everyone listening should go uh, Google that and check that out. But the the really cool part of it is you're kind of explaining how you prioritize things in the ER or the mindset you have as a doctor in the ER and then how you can kind of adopt that mindset for prioritizing things in life. And what an amazing idea for a talk. But part of the reason that video stood out to me was... I, I was just kind of like, what inspired this ER doctor to give a TED talk? You don't see that every day. What what did inspire that? I remember early on, kind of talking to the, I'd been connected to the TED guys early on, and they said, you know, what drives you crazy? And I said, you know what drives me crazy? You talk to somebody and you hear nowadays, you just simply ask, hi, how are you? And they say, oh, I'm crazy, just crazy busy. And I said, so you know, true. I'm gonna, it's so true, right? And it's partly badge of honor, partly self-reflection. There's just so many things packed into that. And I had two conclusions from it. One is that, you know, I'd had my own moments in my life when I felt like my life was getting out of hand or, or crazy busy, you could call it. And I really said, you know, how can I be so in control in the emergency department? I have to be able to look at those ER double doors be able to say that I don't know what's coming through, but whatever it is, I can handle it. And I thought, what am I doing there? How can I reverse engineer that and use it in my life to help me feel that same way in my own life? So I kind of done that work so that now when I heard people say, oh, things are just crazy busy, it made me think, okay, we've got to work. We've got to do some work here. There's work to be done. So when the TED guy said, what makes you crazy? I had a really ready answer for it. So you were ready for that opportunity. I mean, they come to you and you're like, oh, I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Without even realizing I was ready for it. So I guess I was. It was unintentional, but yes. ER doctor. I'll admit, I have not come across in my life many ER doctors that are um, putting such great information out there and just kind of in the landscape, trying to educate the public and just kind of explain kind of what you're doing, bridging this gap between your profession and kind of what we all experience. How did you end up though, even in the ER? Was this a case of traditional, I want to make the world a better place and help people so I'm going to become a doctor or personal you know, experience in childhood or something else? So that's a great question. And when I chose emergency room, I had no plans of doing media. So I'm sure we'll probably talk about, you know, what created that little change. Um, although it makes sense in hindsight, but it wasn't the plan. The main reason I did emergency, I chose the emergency room was I realized that even as like a, a teenager and definitely in my early 20s, when there was an emergency or some sort of crisis, I ended up running towards it. And in those moments were those times for me that otherwise, you know, I, I have ADHD, I have trouble focusing, I'm all over the place. And they're really just a couple of times when I am in flow. One is when I'm playing classical piano, which I've played since I was four. And the other is when I'm in the emergency department, taking care of a patient whose needs 
absolutely supersede my own. And in those moments, I'm not thinking of my to-do list. I'm not thinking about everything else. And I'm truly able to focus and be at my best. And I realized that that was a unique skill set. And I realized that those were moments that I that I loved when I could really contribute to that. So that's where ER came from, because it, I, you know, you have these crises and you can intervene, you can intervene quickly and you can make a massive impact on somebody's life. What made you the person that was always running toward the emergencies? Was that just how you've always been since you were a kid or was there something along the way that sort of you evolved into? I will, you know, I think about firefighters, right? We always say there's, they're always running into the fire. Everyone else is running out. What, what turned you into that sort of person? You know, I th- I'm a firstborn. Maybe it was that to begin oh, with. I was used to I was used to bossing well around <laughs> my poor younger brothers. Um, they may have other commentary to give on this. That's why I'm glad. Uh, hopefully, they're not listening. No, um, you know, I remember very early on. Um, I still remember it. My uh, being with my parents and having my we had horses, and I remember my a horse knocked out my mother. And she, I, I still remember to this day, I was probably around eight and seeing her lying unconscious on the ground and immediately kind of taking care of my brother or, you know, other situations with my little brothers and just having those moments. And whether those were in part just the way I was born or the way that I really over over the years developed an ability to say, OK, there's all these things going on, but what do I need to focus on? What's the most important thing right now? And I think possibly there was something inherent to to maybe how I was born. But I think more, it was really learning no matter what, all of us, that's a skill we can learn. That all of us, you hear people and they say, well, I'm just not good in stress. I'm not good. And I tend to have, uh, I tend to panic. I think it is learned. I think that's something all, and I think all of us can learn when you are feeling that overwhelm, our brains naturally shut down. They breath our, our focus naturally narrows and all we are focused on is survival and not creative thinking. And I think all of us, if you can learn, realize, okay, my focus is narrowing right now. How can I, uh, how can I circumvent that? How can I broaden my focus and see really what needs to be done? And we all can be more effective in, in any sort of crisis or not even in a crisis in our daily lives when you just happen to be feeling stressed and overwhelmed. That narrowing of the focus that you just described, I love the way you say that because I can relate. I Right when you said that, I thought, oh, that's exactly what happens when I'm feeling overwhelmed or stressful is I feel I'm no longer able to like be aware of anything beyond this now single whatever it is that's on my mind. I never thought of it that way, narrowing your focus, which is funny because yeah. normally narrowing your focus, I think, would be, a, in other situations, narrowing your focus is actually a good thing. In this case, it's not so much. Well, it depends on what you're narrowing your focus on. If you're narrowing your focus on some goal you have and how to write your dissertation on it, then yes, it's good. If you're narrowing your focus on to like, oh, bleep, bleep my life is on the line. I got to fight or flight. And that's all I can think of. Then it's not so good. And that's what chronic stress, I talk about chronic stress a lot. And what happens then when that cortisol is chronic, constantly up, that means you're constantly in that narrow focus mode of fight or flight. And it impacts a number of things. It impacts your memory, it impacts your judgment, your anxiety and anger areas of the brain are always primed. And you cannot be thinking at your creative best. And I think anybody who's listening knows when you're in those phases um, that none of us are at our best. And it can seem impossible, but that was the whole point of my TED Talk and my message is that that's not impossible. That's how we work in the emergency department. And we're not superhuman. We have learned the system and the skills and the mindset to be able to function amidst that. Your emergency room training, I feel like, has, has taught you so much and now enabled you to teach us so much. But but before that, um, I'm really curious, when I was kind of looking into your, your journey, during your residency, you were diagnosed with chronic autoimmune arthritis, which from what I understand, kind of made things as simple as walking a little bit more painful for you. And then you're put on medication, but then you're able to get off it. How did you end up getting off of it? Was this like a, a mindfulness thing? Or was it alternative treatment or? Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. So what you're, what you're referring to is I was in my intern year, I was at Yale and I started waking up, I'd been healthy all my life and I started to develop swollen, painful joints and I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't run. I couldn't walk. I couldn't 
stand up to see my patients. And we went through a bunch of different tests and a bunch of different specialists and eventually was diagnosed with actually psoriatic arthritis um, and was put on medication. And I, you know, I have new empathy to all my patients who have to give themselves shots because I had to give myself shots twice a week. And I was the world's biggest baby. I was convinced that, you know, the first time I'd hit an artery, I thought I was going to die. The poor nurse that was teaching me how to do an injection was like the needles five millimeters long. You did not hit an artery. Um, <laughs> so I, I, but I was told really, this is the way you're going to be. You're, you have this disease and it will destroy your joints and you will need to be on this medication the rest of your life. And, you know, I was very grateful for that medication, but I wasn't okay with nece- necessarily with that kind of life sentence. And if that were my only option, then great. I would have done it the rest of my life. I decided to say, okay, let me look, what are my other options? And I thought, you know, I'm at the best institutions in the world. Let me start to research. And so I did. And I researched a lot of Western medicine, Eastern medicine, holistic health. And I ended up doing a lot of different things, um, including drastically changing my diet. I used to uh, keep a bag of Swedish fish in my white coat pocket. I would have it in the middle of an ER ship. Those are good. Um, they are good. They are good. Yeah, <laughs> um, so drastically changing my diet, changing, uh, yes, how I handled stress from a mindfulness standpoint and really getting a handle on that, changing, you know, my sleep patterns and trying to get more of a control over that. And so by doing all of these things, uh, you know, in residency, you're awake for 36 hours at a time. That's not good for anyone. So obviously I couldn't change those sleep patterns while I was in residency. But actually, it was as I finished residency and had more, much more control over my lifestyle and how I handled everything, I was eventually able to come off of the medications entirely. And that's not to say that I, I never want a patient just to stop their medications. This was in conjunction with consideration with my doctor. Um, and again, I'm a huge fan of Western medicine, obviously. But I think it's it's a key part of the bigger picture. And that's when I realized that, you know, for many of my patients, hypertension, Um, that take medications, but lifestyle is 80% of their hypertension problem. And so I realized there's so much that my patients need to be hearing that it was hard for me to find out. It was hard for me to find out how impossible must it be for the rest of my patients and my audience. That became a really big driver for wanting to help communicate this, the, the best information, distill information for people to help make their lives healthier, better, and easier and better informed. I'm thinking now you ran toward the emergency. Now that I I heard you say that about uh, with your mom and the horse, you realized I now am told this is the way it's going to be. This is my problem. And you ran right toward it and you decided, no, I'm, I'm going to figure this out. Yeah. Well, I think anybody telling me that it can't be done is usually when I decide what my next project is. So (laughs) (laughs) whether that's a good thing or not, but a good dose of obstinance um, always probably helps anyone trying to uh, build a new business or uh, launch something new. Absolutely. Speaking of your residency, so we're recording this in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, but this isn't the first pandemic you've experienced in your career from what I understand, the, you were in residency when the bird flu epidemic broke out. Um, I'm curious, what did that epidemic do to you and kind of your career? Did that shift anything? Yes, it did. Tim, you have, you are so good on your background research. I'm amazed. <laughs> I'm a little worried as to what else you may have found out. Um, <laughs> maybe you did call my younger brothers after all. Um, so yeah, I was in residency during the swine flu epidemic. And I remembered it was the first time. So just as an aside, I had gone to business school. I'd gotten my MBA from Harvard. And I my plan was when I finished residency was probably was to go back into the um, healthcare finance um, or um, digital services and technology. And that was the plan. And um, but then I was in the middle of residency and swine flu epidemic. And so many of my patients, I realized how scared they were. Because many of them were listening to things, you know, you know, the, the local news or any news would say, you know, stay tuned for the 10 p.m. for the death toll from the swine flu. So terrible. And it was. And our waiting room length of stay just to see a doctor was eight hours before you could even see a doctor. We were that packed. And I remember seeing my patients and so many of them, I would say, yes, you have this, but you are, you're 
you know, you're otherwise healthy. And this is this for you is going to be like the flu. So you'll be miserable, um, but you're going to be okay. And I'm sorry, you were so scared. So that was the first light bulb that I thought people need a better message. And I can help 30 to 50 patients, individuals in a given shift in the ER, how can I impact more people? So that led to me doing some local news and, you know, just being a resource for local news outlets and magazines. And that led to doing national TV. And um, one thing led to the next to bring me to where I am now media wise, but that was never the vision. It only spurned from seeing how frightened my patients were and how they needed a new message. So what you described at the 10 o'clock news, I think we're all familiar with, although the concept of the 10 o'clock news is an interesting concept nowadays. Um, One could argue it no longer exists, but this idea that everything on the news is, like you said, the death tolls, the the negative, just negativity. It's just pure negativity. And it's been that way for, I mean, as long as I can remember. And so I share your sentiment of this is not the way it should be there's got to be a better way and people are scared they are you know hurt um but what made you think you could change that i mean and you are changing that but at that moment what made you think well this is wrong i'm going to change it you know i that's a good question <laughs> i just decided it needed to be changed tim and i decided i didn't i didn't have a vision for how i was going to do it i just thought there needs to be a better message out there and it it came from talking to my patients i knew talking to my patients my patients once they got into the er room and i would say you just say things like you know i'm sorry you're here i am here now you are in the right place and we're going to take care of this and seeing people go from this place of being so stressed, trying just to hold it together, and then they get here and now they realize, okay, I'm in the right spot. And, and seeing that calm, even though they were in pain and they were still afraid, but realizing that you could impact people's lives that way. And I, I knew that there, a, a new message, I saw it in the emergency department, giving people different information delivered in a different way that did not have to come from a position of scaring them first, really was powerful. And I felt that if that works on one person, that would work with everybody because that's, you don't have to be fear driven to get people's attention. I love your empathy. Uh, so much of this seems to come from your, your shared understanding and the empathy you have with your patients and just others. I'm curious, you being a medical professional and a doctor, was there a, maybe as a child or something, uh, a doctor you know that you saw that was really kind and giving and caring, or you maybe thought, you know, I want to emulate that? Or is this just who you are as a person? I mean, I can just feel the, like I said, that empathy, which is, you know, the type of person we would want being a medical professional. I'm just curious like, where that came from. Yeah. Um, and that's a, somebody's never asked me that before. Um, you know, I did have wonderful, I had wonderful role models in terms of my parents and my, my pediatrician growing up. And uh, you know, and just loving people and seeing that sort of empathy. I, I learned from my patients too. And I think I learned early on, you know, there's sometimes that next patient comes in and your next, your gut feeling is like, is to think, oh my goodness, I, I can't handle this. I have too many patients right now. Um, and you can think of them like a number and they are a room number. And, or you can walk in that room with them and be in there with them. And you see, this is not, this person's not bed number 17. They are Mrs. Jones and they need you to love them. Every single patient. Cause if you don't, you'll miss something and you won't be able to pay attention. You won't be able to be present. And I think I learned that very early on. And that makes a difference because you can think of it as bed number 17 or Mrs. Jones, who is a grandmother and you can and are willing to do and will be able to do far more for Mrs. Jones, who's a grandmother. That's, I love that. I'm wondering though, I have a follow-up here. I have to ask if you're on a 12 hour shift and the beginning of the shift, I'm sure it's really, I mean, you're fresh, fresh brain, fresh, everything, you know, you're ready to go. And Mrs. Jones is Mrs. Jones. But by the end of that 12 hour shift, how do you still keep Mrs. Jones, Mrs. Jones and not bed number seven? You got to be exhausted. I mean, with, you know, whatever happened that day, how do you, still keep up the the care and the love by the end of that shift. So sometimes it's being very deliberate. And, you know, again, I'm not doing 
and I think that's the point of the TED talk is that we're not doing this because it just all comes naturally to us and we're superhuman or I'm not just a Pollyanna or just this, I'm not a mother Teresa who just goes and just loves on everybody and it's easy. No, I think you actually have to be very deliberate and re here's where research comes into it. And I'm always a huge fan of what does the science tell us? You and I talked, so this kind of goes back to what we were talking about a minute ago about that narrowed focus. Again, high stress, High chronic stress narrows our focus to fight or flight and survival. And, but when you add in different things, mindfulness or compassion, actually compassion is one of the things that will help you widen your focus. They've done research on, on physicians and a number of different um, businesses, a, a number of different industries that when you can have compassion for the person in front of you, you are able to see broader creative solutions and you're able to have a wider perspective. So, that's what works for me. Sometimes it's literally going in and instead of seeing and deliberately reminding myself, this is not bed number 17. This is Mrs. Jones. She may be acting really ornery. She's, you know, you know, she's acting so be because she's an enormous amount of pain or what is behind her behavior. So we have to be deliberate about this. And we all can do this. We have to do that with your child. It's about taking it out of what it means to me because what it means to me, 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 is that this is another patient that now I have to deal with and I haven't eaten or had anything to drink and I need to go to the bathroom and, you know, or saying this person needs me. What do they need? How can I help? And that they're not doing this to annoy me. That's not their point. They're not here for that reason. So it's, you know, with your toddler, you can say my toddler is having a temper tantrum to give me a hard time. Or the flip side, doing this equivalent in about that is to say, my toddler is having a tantrum because she's having a hard time. Let me look into that. So I think it's very deliberate. Again, it's not about being Mother Teresa. It's about when you're in those moments where you're stressed and you just can't deal and you see somebody else and the fact that they've asked you to do another thing makes you frustrated with them. Instead, really forcing yourself to see them as a person. What do they need? How can I help them? Did any of that come from your ER training? Like, I, I know nothing about medical training. Do they have any sort of like, not bedside manner, but like that kind of the human side of the emotional side of it? Like, does that come up in training at all? Or is that just, I mean, you kind of learn that through the field and actually having real patients and that kind of thing? You know, that doesn't come in their textbooks per se. There's not a chapter. Okay. I mean, there might be. There, there's probably some chapters on empathy and things, but I think the ones that I remember are seeing them from my my attendings who are my professors and how they teach you. And I remember one attending, because uh, you think of the ER and like every single case, you're you're surviving, you're taking care of a car accident here. Yeah, you're yeah. this, it looks all like Grey's Anatomy. I was just going to ER. say, it's, it's like Grey's Anatomy. Um, <laughs> and I remember he said, you just look to have one good connection with a patient a day or one good engagement a day and that feeds you and so you just look for those because you get to have those connections but if you're just thinking about it as this is more on my caseload or my workload then you don't see that but if you can really try to say okay what's behind this and again it's like getting out of your own head so for me that's compassion that's how i do it other people can do different ways i know um i know a really great researcher he uses curiosity so he says, instead of compassion, he says, use curiosity. Why is this person behaving this certain way? Or why am I feeling stressed? Or why is my child having a tantrum? Or why is my manager giving me the 14th poorly, um, poor guidance on how to do a project? Curiosity is how he does it, is leading with that, again, to decrease that stress response and to open up your field of vision. Others just talk about breathing mindfulness and presence. There's a lot of different ways, but the baseline is that you go from having this uh, narrow point of view that is just worried that you can't do anything to now being able to say, okay, well, how can I handle it? This is more than I wanted to handle, but how can I handle it? How can I solve for this? I love that. So your, your training ER, I mean, like I said, that TEDx video is great because you're kind of like giving us a window into what you learned and how this can actually apply to things outside the ER. Um, but from what I understand, the whole point here is that, as you mentioned, you're in the ER as a doctor in any situation could come through those two doors. I'm sure you've seen all sorts of things. Um, I'm curious, though, you know, you're a mother of two. Um, and so you obviously uh, did the training prior to becoming a mother. Were you when when you all of a sudden 
you know, I remember this. One day you don't have a child and the next day you do. Uh, and all of a sudden you are a parent. <laughs> Funny you know. how that works. Yeah, yes. it just happens. Um, did Were you prepared? Or I'm sorry. Did any of that ER training prepare you for that situation or any of those situations that came up? Or you were able to kind of look back and be like, oh, I, I can tackle this situation with my daughter because I remember what I learned in, you know, in the field. I think when after I had my daughter was when I most realized that I that that's when I had the challenges that I realized I need to take whatever I'm using in the emergency department and how can I apply it in my own life? Because that after my daughter was born for the first four weeks, it was like flying high. I wasn't sleeping. It was fine. I had this beautiful thing. And around five or six weeks of not sleeping, um, and oh, also at the same time, I had this vision that I was going to still be working at the time I was, um, in addition to working clinically, I was the SVP of clinical strategy for a digital health company. And I had told them I would be working entirely through my maternity that I wasn't going to need time off. So I was trying to do this all at the same time. And around six weeks, I hit a wall. And, you know, I was, I was emotional. I was exhausted. I wasn't able to do anything that I was trying to do. And I think that's when I started thinking about it. And thinking, what am I doing in the emergency department that I'm able to handle uncertainty and workload and, and all of these things? And how can I start looking at that? And how can I apply that to my own life and health? So that's where it started. Well, baby number one. I think that was the, the straw that broke the camel's back that made me realize, okay, I need to do this. So that's where it all started. Um, by the time I had baby number two was when I wrote my book proposal for mom hacks, which was kind of the culmination of that thinking. And also I admit Tim, it was totally a cheat because a lot of mom hacks were things for which I did not yet have a solution, but having had a second child, I knew I real, I needed to. And now I had an excuse to talk to anybody to get answers for it for myself. And then also for my book. So the, my children, I think were the catalyst for me extrapolating the ER lessons to life. That proposal that became the book, were you planning on releasing or were you planning on bringing all that knowledge together and sharing it with the world? Or was that just kind of along the way you thought, well, there's probably somebody else out there who's run into this. Maybe I should see if I could help them. So I had been approached by a book agent and so who had wanted me to write up a proposal for it. So we initially, I had written it and it was a much larger health system or something. And within it were each chapter had little mom hacks. So Hachette, which ended up being the, the company, the publisher that published my book came back and they said, you know, we really love these mom hacks. Could you make us a book on those? And at that point, baby number two had arrived and I realized I could do a book that was largely going to be bullets with a couple paragraphs here and there. And I thought, yes, that I can do. I can write bullets. And so it's perfect. It's for the busy. It says mom hacks because I had a one a one way train of mind, single train of mind, because I was on maternity and I wanted to make it mom hacks. But I've had plenty of people. I've had dads. I've had people who have no children at all. I was speaking at an event a couple months ago and a woman raised her hand. She said, you know, I don't have kids and I would never have bought your book. But now that I've heard you speak, I'm absolutely going to buy your book. <laughs> 80% of it is universal. It is, and you know, it's how to eat and sleep and be less stressful and be less stressed out and exercise better. Um, and all in bulleted form, because I know that none of us have time, uh, especially if you're parents, we don't even ha have time to go to the bathroom by ourselves, let alone read a, read a large paragraph book. Yeah, that's a fair assessment, I think. <laughs> yeah, so I focus on, I talk about high yield health or health with an ROI. What are the smallest things you can do that are going to provide the largest leverage for the biggest gain? So what's your, earlier you spoke about how you didn't necessarily have this vision of changing, uh, at first, you know, changing the way that the health uh, media covered, you know, this sort of thing with the bluebird flu and that you sort of started going down that path. Um, now, what would you say? What's your intentional vision? Is there an intentional vision? Like what's kind of, what's your legacy here that you're working on? Yeah, it, it really, it has all started to come together. Um, I Before I was just thinking, here's a need, I'm just going to try to to service that need. Um, and, and what I've realized, a couple of things have come together. One is I realized there are a lot of people who want 
holistic, they want wellness, but they want the science behind it and they want medical answers. They kind of want that all in one place. And I had a lot of really smart uh, female friends who would come to me and they would kind of half apologetically say, you know, I wanted an answer to this question and I went to, and they would name a site that, and then they'd say, you know, and I know it's really not a science-based site, but I didn't know where else to go. And I remember talking to Dr. Oz once and he and I, he, I, I, because of my work on TV and my work in the digital health space, I've gotten to know him fairly well. And there was a question someone had posed that I thought was not really a clinically accurate question. And I said, and he and I were working on it. And I said, we're just not even going to answer it. And he said, Daria, you can, you can not answer it at all. And he said, I'll support you. He said, but people are looking for this information. So the other option is that you provide that information, but you're coming from a science-based place. And I realized that's what people need. So I created what we just launched a few months ago. And still what I do, I have it on my website and on Instagram and many places is I say that I provide a lifestyle guide with a science-based soul. So you get all that information you want on, on nutrition and wellness and but you know that it's coming always from an evidence-based place. That's the information you're going to get from me always delivered in a way that it sounds like, you know, we're friends as if you could call me up. That's how I would tell it to you. It's not antiseptic at all. And the other kind of the permutation of that that's really come out of COVID is to be delivering that same kind of information and answering questions on COVID. And I'm answering them on Instagram all the time. They're most active, although other platforms, but I've had people come respond back and they say, you, you're projecting such an air of calm, or you're the first person who'd made me feel reassured and that parts of this are in my control. And I suddenly, I don't feel as stressed out. So thank you. And uh, that that's the mission. It's the lifestyle guide with a science-based soul. It is giving you the information you need to feel not frantic, but to feel empowered and that you can keep moving forward. You do have a very calming demeanor about you. Like I've seen, obviously, the TED Talk and, and chatting with you now, but I've seen other interviews of you with you on video, and you do have a very calming demeanor. You mentioned, I mean, you've been playing piano for um, a long time, and you had like 14 years of lessons, and you even studied it a bit in undergrad. Mm-hmm. Um, piano, to me, is a very calming instrument, Um Is there any correlation there? So it's funny that you say that. So one of the things I say is that we all get scared. We all get nervous. I have those moments where where I'm taking care of a patient and my heart is in my throat or I am not breathing until they take their next breath. I know I'm holding my breath. Um, So we all get scared. We all get nervous. But it's what you do next that matters. And so it's realizing that it's okay to feel those nerves and not put that judgment on yourself. But what are you going to do next? And it reminds me when I was in, so I studied piano in undergrad and my, one of my teachers was exceptional. And so when we auditioned for lessons, I remember being so nervous that I was standing on stage, I was playing the piano, the judges were in the audience. I was so nervous that my knees were hitting together, but I couldn't actually play the pedals because I, like my oh, knees were no. hitting so hard. <laughs> um, somehow they saw through that madness and the cacophony of probably what I was playing. And I, I qualified to be able to study there at Eastman. And I remember my teacher had won uh, the national Chopin competition. And I said, when do you, how do you learn not to be so nervous And I still remember to this day, he said, Daria, you never get less nervous. You just learn how to channel it. Oh, I love that. Right? Yeah. That is how we do it. We don't judge. Don't judge the nervousness. Learn how to function amidst it because it is a factor of life. That's so powerful. Don't try and eliminate it, but maybe try and harness it. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. So... That I've never forgotten that. And I think that's something that I do. Take those nerves. But what are you going to do with them? Don't just sit with them and don't let them cause you to spin. Do something with them. Let them give you that drive to do whatever it is you're trying to do. Oh, yes. And spinning, that's a great way of putting it too. I feel like that's what happens is you sit there and you're just spinning your wheels and as a result, becoming more and more frustrated or more Mm -hmm. and more nervous. And then it's a endless cycle. And I think the other thing to do is to remember remember your wins because they have a concept called stress inoculation. 
think of it like a vaccine. You get your flu vaccine, you get a small dose, and then after that, your body builds up a response to it. Okay, it's similar to you break a bone and your body will scar over that one spot and become stronger. Same thing with a stress inoculation. And I think this is what residents gives you, residency and emergency medicine gives you more than anything, is that you are faced constantly with moments where you think, I don't know what to do, I can't handle this. And you are forced to look back on your training, to look on your team, to look on the systems, the systems we're talking about and other things like triage and mindset, and you do come through it. And in the process of coming through it every time, you realize I am stronger, I am more capable than I was. And so all of your listeners can do this. Everybody listening has had moments where they thought, I can't do this. There's no way. And yet the fact that they were still alive today means that they came through it. So look at that. Remember that so that the next time that you have something harder, you're not starting at zero again. You're starting at the culmination of all the other stressful moments that you've already survived. Did you study um, piano? I'm sorry. Did you major in piano in undergrad or did you just study it as part of a different track? Yeah, it was. I was at the University of Rochester, which also is uh, owns Eastman School of Music. So I did not major in it, oh, okay. but uh, I was able to study it as a side. Yeah, it was a great opportunity. Yeah, and I I love what you said about um, yeah, what you just said about uh, channeling that. Um, I saw, I don't remember where, but you had uh, written somewhere, maybe in an interview, that to recharge, you one of the techniques you use to kind of refresh yourself is to watch one of the videos of what you call like your laugh list, a little note you keep of silly memes and videos that are going to put a smile on your face, make you feel better. And I, I noticed that and I thought, you know, at first I laughed because I'm like, oh, there's plenty of that in the internet. And then I thought to myself, that's actually a really good idea. Like intentionally have a running list of just funny things so that when you get to a spot or a place where you're like, I, I'm kind of down, you can intentionally pull something out of that list and lift your... I think about that like, I don't know if you're... Um, a big music fan, like just listening to songs and if it kind of drives your mood. But for me, there are certain songs I can listen to intentionally knowing that it will change my mood. I mean, it could mm-hmm. make me sad on purpose, make me happy on purpose, make me angry on purpose. And I, that's what that made me think of is like, oh, she has a little laugh list. She's going to intentionally lift her mood. Um, was that just something you just, you know, you enough memes on the internet, you thought I should maybe keep a list of these and next time I'm not feeling so well, I can pull that out. Mm -hmm. I think you really can. You can drive your state. You can drive your feelings by driving where you look and driving your thoughts. And I think we often don't realize that how powerful we are for that. And so we just kind of knee-jerk reaction where these knee-jerk pinball set of feelings all the time. And it it feels awful to be that way. So, and you know, I do this for gratitude. I do this for humor as well. And you have to find the funny. And perhaps this, this, I think I've always been a little bit goofy and my girlfriends I in college used to have these moments that we would call, like if something happened, we would truly be like, to truly say that. And you'd really be savoring this moment, even if it was, whether it was you got a good grade on a test or your crush called, you'd ask you out, you know, for pizza, the dining hall, that was totally worth an E moment (laughs) and realizing you could savor that. And I remember working in the emergency department once and I was, I was in my second, I was just starting my second year of residency. I was super nervous. I was leading the trauma for an older woman who had come in. And when you are leading the trauma, everybody else, including all your senior residents, the senior attending physicians who are the heads of the trauma in ER are all supposed to be quiet while you, this little pinsy secondary resident have to go through the airway and breathing and I was so scared. And I was this little older lady. She had fallen. And I did A is airway and B is breathing. So I put my stethoscope right on the center of her chest. And I said, take two big breaths. And she said, what? And I put my stethoscope, I tapped it on her chest. And I said, big breaths, big breaths. And she looked at me and patted my arm and said, oh, honey, they used to be. (laughs) So you have to find the humor. I was labeled as that, of course, for the next few months. Nobody let me forget that. But you have <laughs> to find the humor in those moments. And that's what ties us together as humans. So yeah, my humor list, it's um, James Corden. Go watch his uh, carpool oh, karaoke. He's got some good or, stuff. Um, what are the sidewalk musicals? 
I don't know why. I don't know why sidewalk musicals make me laugh so hard. They're so ridiculous. I have not ridiculous. heard of this. <gasps> what is a sidewalk okay. musical? So, um, or no, it's not sidewalk. It's um, where you walk across the street. So they have these. And they all Not jaywalk. Yes, but crosswalk. 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 Um, so they say today we're doing Beauty and the Beast. Um, and so they'll have like the people, the actual Broadway cast of Beauty and the Beast. And when the lights turn red and it's a walk, they run out into the crosswalk and they start acting it out. And there's traffic <laughs> and people are honking at them and people have no clue what's going on. And you have some people who are singing exceptionally well. And then you have James Corden, who's himself a great singer, but he's also such a comic actor. And he's usually like in a dress or something ridiculous. And then, of course, the lights change and then they panic and they're like, go, go, go out of the street. <laughs> it's ridiculous, Tim. Ridiculous. But there's no way that you cannot laugh at that stuff. So that Jimmy Fallon, whatever works, because you have to and you have to remind yourself that it's it's deliberate. It's you know, you don't have to say, well, I'm, I'm not feeling like watching something funny. Well, that's probably when you need to go do it. Another trick that I use for helping my state and state of mind is gratitude. And I got into this habit of every night writing down three things for which I'm grateful. And there's a lot of neuroscience behind this and the science of neuroplasticity that when you start to do three new things every night, your brain actually starts instead of scanning for threats, which is how we evolutionarily are, is you're looking for that saber toothed tiger on the, on the distance it's going to come out and get you. It starts to scan for positive moments to populate this list and I was talking to a therapist friend and I said, you know, this is a while back. I said, some nights I just don't want to do my gratitude list. I don't feel it. And my friend said, well, those are exactly the nights when you really should. And so I do. And so I write it down, even if sometimes I'm begrudgingly writing down those things, which I'm grateful uh, because your feelings follow and you do those actions deliberately and your feelings and your mindset will follow. And so I say, I do the gratitude list at night, not because I'm some optimistic Pollyanna. Uh, Jeff Glass is always half full. It's because I'm not. And that's why I need to do those things. One of the side effects of that too, I've noticed, uh, gratitude is something I've really gotten into in the past, uh, say two years. It just feels good. I mean, this sounds kind of selfish, but it really feels good to thank somebody and really just like, for me, it's, I love, I mean, it, I think it biologically feels good. Like I'm sure there's chemicals going off my brain, but I really love just the way that you can make someone feel if you thank them, you know, if it's a specific person, maybe thanking them for something they did for you, or if it's a team member. And I find myself doing that so often now, just because it, it's almost like a release. Like, I feel like after you've, shown gratitude you just kind of take a deep breath like oh my gosh like i am so thankful for them and now i just also feel better yes you do and so there is science behind that tim there was one i think it was um, some researchers out of harvard had people write thank you notes to somebody who'd made a difference in their life and then they measured the happiness level of the people who had written the thank you notes not the recipients but the ones who had written it and there was a significant impact in their happiness another one gave people money and said give it away as much as you want. And the people who gave away the most money were the ones, in fact, who had higher happiness levels the next day. So one of the best ways to get out of your own head is to think about somebody else and that in whatever way you're doing it. I think it was uh, not this past September, September before that, I did this exercise with a friend that she had found online or something, but it was... Um, like every day for 30 days, start the day off by writing three things you're thankful for and try not to repeat them. And I did it for all 30 days. I never done anything like that. And I remember like, it was so exciting, not exciting, that's the wrong word, challenging, but in a good way at the each day, beginning of each day, having to think about, all right, I'm going to think of three things I'm grateful for. And then thinking, all right, well, Oh, I, oh wait, I already did that yesterday. I can't do that again. And trying to think of new things. And then also, so that felt great. But then by the end of the 30 days, I mean, what you said earlier about kind of like it, it opens your focus and it, I was able to start now just naturally thinking more graciously, gratitudely, thankfully. <laughs> gratefully, <laughs> yes. All of the above. Yeah. I, all of a sudden, like, I felt like it really almost drove home this idea of like just starting to be more grateful in general. And I didn't continue the practice, you know, every day after that. But I do think that's part of why nowadays, like I'm just more naturally, more 
you know, expressing gratitude towards others because it just kind of jumpstarted that. Yeah. And I bet what you were doing is your mind subconsciously was thinking of ways to populate your list for the next day. You now are looking at like, yeah. Oh, that's a good thing I can put on the list. Yeah. Cause that otherwise, did, well, I do remember that happening. Yeah. It changes your brain and you're, it changes what you're looking at. Instead of being this sonar looking for threats, you're looking for good. And it, it does. And it, it's deliberate. It's not easy for anybody. It's not natural, but that's what's so important about it. Cause you really can change the pathways of your brain that way. I think of it like your brain's kind of like, if your brain's a rock, it's kind of like water going through a rock. It has to go through that little trickle, has to go through a lot of times. And eventually it becomes easier and easier and easier, whatever it is you're trying to do. And it does the same thing for bad habits too, which is why we want to try to purposely instill these good habits for ourselves. That water going through the brain, that's a beautiful illustration of that. I'm just picturing that. I'm picturing a rock actually, but... My my husband or my parents might say that a rock and my brain are probably, you know, very hard headed, but <laughs> that, that's why you need the water going through to, to, help, <laughs> to help with those things. I'm always curious. People talk about having a mentor and they talk about, you know, whether it's in a career or in life or at different phases of your career or life. And that question comes up sometimes, you know, people ask, oh, do you have a mentor? And I think to myself, I can never really pinpoint a specific person. I feel like I've had, I feel like I just learned from people. Like they don't even realize they're mentors to me and I learned from them. Um, but I saw you had, when you were thinking about, you know, back going back to this time of the health news is and the media is kind of not what you're expecting during your residency. And you're like, I, I could probably help change this. You, you start to think about, well, there's you know, all sorts of reasons that maybe I'm not capable of this, but your, your mentor in, in the Harvard Dean um, asks you, well, why not? Why not you? And then I'm curious because I think this is, we all can have this impact on other people that we don't realize. So I'm guessing this mentor and uh, colleague of yours had an impact on you when he said that. What what was that impact? Like, how did that change your perspective? Because obviously you've now gone on and definitely embarked on this mission. So something happened there. Yeah, no, I think that's, and that was Dean John MacArthur, who had been the Dean of Harvard Business School, who I had the immense good fortune to get to know. I was very fortunate to get to know him. Um, And I I think that's part of, I think the role of mentor and mentee, my mentors have changed as I've evolved and that's okay. I think we, it's important to seek out when you are, are looking for a mentor, you often aren't looking necessarily for that person to be a mentor. Maybe you go to talk for them. But the ones that I think I remember the most, that that were really the most helpful, were ones who maybe supplied something that at that time I didn't didn't feel confident about about enough about, or I was kind of missing and missing that piece. And so with uh, Dean MacArthur, yes, I was talking to him about media and this interest. And you said like, what was your vision for media? I didn't have a vision. I just felt like something needed to be done. But then I could think of all the reasons why I was the wrong person to do this. I had no media training. I'd never done anything on camera. I didn't know how to do my own hair and makeup if you wanted to take it to that level. Um, And so I think one of the biggest values of a mentor is to help you break through all those arguments you can make against yourself doing something. I think that's what he did. And I said, why, why should it be me? And just exactly as you said, he said, why not you? I think that's where mentors can be the most helpful in steering you to figure out what you, you might already know, but you just don't feel confident enough to put the words to it. That's so often the case, isn't it? That it turns out we probably already know it, but we refuse to let ourselves realize it. Well, isn't that what they say advice is? Advice is the information you ask for when you already know the answer. Oh, I've not heard that one. Yes. <laughs> I like that. And I've gotten better at that. I realize now if there's a video that I, um, say I filmed a video or I did some media piece, and if I really don't like it, but I don't want to go back and do it again, because uh, that, that's hassle, often I'll think, I'm just going to send this to my friend who's a reporter. And I think, you know what, I'm only sending it because I know that I shouldn't publish it and I just have to go refilm this. So... Often we know a lot of things. Now, that's not always the case with a mentor. A mentor can also help open the doors for you, or they can show you a path because you weren't aware that one existed. Um, But I think also when appropriate for them to be our champion or to at least poke holes or put questions into some of the arguments you make against yourself doing something. 
Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of your videos and, and the media, um, you produced your own health show for a bit on local access TV back in the day? Way back in the day, yes. So... I mean, I, I, that's a lot of work. I mean, was this during your, your residency or somewhere in there? or I was finished with residency. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I just knocked over my water. Excuse Uh-oh. me. Um, when I was finished with the residency, I was in Boston. And uh, this is when talking with Dean MacArthur. And he said, why not you go ahead, do something for media. And um, but I think part of it, I think we talked about training. And there's a number of systems that you have to learn in the emergency department, you learn how to handle stress, but then you learn skills. And that's partly why you're confident that you can handle something in the emergency department, because you have the skills to do it, because you've done it a bunch of times. There is confidence that comes from skills building. So I would say anybody who is working on something, make sure that you're the best at it. Make sure that you really can say when something is scary to be able to say, um, there is no one better than I am at this or at this moment. I'm the best person in this room to handle this, knowing that you have to know that whether you are standing and talking to investors or you're on camera on CNN, you have to know there's, I'm the best person to be able to answer this right now. So I didn't have the skills to do media stuff. I'd never done television. And you know, so many people on TV have gone through years of school. So um, one of the local access networks had been looking for a doctor to do a show. So they said, yeah, we'll, we'll produce your show for you and you come on. So I got a bunch of other doctor friends and we would go and I would interview them and it was really fun. And I learned how to edit video and I learned how to, you know, just angles and camera work and and so many things. I think you have to do that. You have to be able to look at it from the ground up to know how to do that and be able to have taken that route. So you've done quite a few television and on-camera interviews since those days. I I have to imagine that that was a great foundation. I mean, do you ever look back and think, oh, I remember when we were kind of, you know, we were playing with this angle and I remember figuring out the audio levels and kind of figuring out how that all works? Yeah. Although it's pretty painful to go back and watch those clips. I don't necessarily watch them. I mean, everybody (laughs) has those. I mean, the first time I was on on the Dr. Oz show, I, I go back, I had seen that one a while back and I don't think I was breathing, Tim. I'm pretty sure I held my breath that entire time. Uh, So again, it's a learning curve. And anybody who you see, you see them on national TV and we think, well, they're on national TV. They just are born doing that. No, everybody you see, whatever they're doing in their work, there have been years and years of, of building up to get to there, no matter what. Yeah, I mean, how long have you been at it? Is this, uh, I feel like it's the old, what, 15, 20 year overnight success, right? Yeah. <laughs> Feels like around 80 years, Tim. But yeah, I'm told <laughs> it was just uh, something smaller. But yes, you know, training in emergency medicine and medicine and then learning how to do things on camera, they're very different skill sets. Um, and you hit bumps in the road and things that are silly but can feel heartbreaking at the time. I remember when I first did a local news something and somebody called put a comment and they said, we couldn't listen to a word you said because your hair was out of place and it just looked so bad. And I remember walking along the Charles river, bawling my eyes out, calling my girlfriend who was a local TV anchor. And she said, okay, we're going to do two things. One, we're going to get you a thicker skin. And two, I'm going to teach you how to use hairspray. So it's all about surrounding yourself with people, too, who've been there before. Maybe not the exact route that you have been, but you have to have those people you can call who can help you along the way. So you are, I kind of see these two sides now. We have the emergency room doctor and just medical professional who's running toward the emergency wants to help people. And then you also want to help people now, and you've been helping people now through this other avenue of sort of like you said, the media personality and the online content and just all sorts of education. Is it tough to juggle both of those? I feel like those are both very, not just time consuming, so much time in the day type thing, but also like mentally, like taking a lot of mental energy each. So it's got to be very, I mean, draining, I guess. So that has, that's a great question. And that's been a path to get to a point. And I think Everybody probably does this in, in, in one way or another, especially if you feel like you're a person who you're kind of at an intersection of a number of things like I am being a physician and being on television. Um, and there were there were periods of time, especially, you know, five to six years ago, I would have my digital health executive job 
And then I'd go work in the emergency department. And then I would go work and do te- television. And obviously, I guess we're recording audio because I'm doing, I'm demonstrating for those people who are listening. <laughs> we're on I a am video physically chat, yeah. with, uh, yeah, but <laughs> I, I'm physically demonstrating three very different silos. And it was very hard. I felt very um, dissociated one from the other and never felt like I was doing, I, when I was doing one, I felt like I should be doing the other. As those things started to evolve and you know, I, I started to do more and more media, my book came out, started to do more television. Um, I started to kind of figure out the core and, and they all started to co- combine together, which is now where it is. And that is a point that's absolutely sustainable and makes it fun. So core is it? Yes, I'm an emergency room physician at my core. I'm still treating patients, level one traumas doing that. Um, and But then wrapped up within that is now is the media. So now I take what am I seeing in the emergency department? What am I seeing from my patients? Um no matter what, whether it's you know now with COVID, you know, my, what am I seeing with COVID? But then also seeing what are my patients, what are they struggling with for eating and stress and all of that, and that feeds what I talk about on the media world, and that feeds that. And then also, as that since I'm, a, I'm an advisor to different you know digital health services and technology companies, again that feeds that because I'm those boots on the ground. But now I'm able to communicate it as well, so I'm able to be that liaison. So now it all feeds together. And I see something in the ER or I see something on media, and I realize oh I should do a video on that or I should add to my course that I have for people to do on that. And it all feeds together. So I would tell anybody, since many of us are often at that stage of things feeling separate, is to say, what are the core commonalities? How can you get to that point where one thing feeds the other? That way your yield is much greater. That way the content and the insights you have all start to uh, be synergistic. And that's the goal. You referenced making videos. I'm just reminded of, so we're recording this in late June of 2020. Um, a time where everyone's trying to wear masks and you had a video, I think it was on Facebook a couple of days ago where um, you were sort of explaining, you know, for any arguments against wearing masks in public and the effectiveness of them, uh, you were basically doing this experiment where you were trying on different masks. Yeah, I think you, you looked like you were I a- just actually just published it last night. Oh, did you? Yes. I somehow I, oh, somehow I caught it early then. Um, <laughs> or maybe it was last night that I was watching it. Um, and, yeah. <laughs> it feels like light years ago. But oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah. And you were you were wearing the different types of masks mm-hmm. from the thin ones up to the, the respirator ones. And then you were measuring your heart rate and it basically just explaining that you were trying to make the argument. Or, I mean, you were making the argument that, you know, wearing a mask doesn't necessarily change, you know, your vitals in that way. It's not like you're in danger or anything if you're wearing a mask. And I thought... What a fantastic way to communicate this message and to make this argument. Because, again, I, I, you can see me hesitating saying the word argument because it sounds so aggressive. But you were, you were not aggressive at all in this video. You were very welcoming. You were very positive. You were just like, hey, I understand what people are saying. Let's do this little experiment and I'll show you. And you did. And I thought, that's just so fantastic. What a positive way of addressing that question. Thank you. And that was the goal because I have been so frustrated and somebody else sent me a video today about somebody else making a video of um, how masks are going to effectively kill everybody. And I looked at that person's, they, they say they're a doctor, they're not a doctor. And they've been like, they've like, it talked about how they've done treatments that have actually killed people and killed patients because they were not in evidence. And so the problem is you have all these loud voices. And so and there's no science behind them. And it gets so confusing for the consumer because they feel like they're in headline whiplash. So whether it's COVID, whether it's what you should eat, whether it's um, how to sleep or anything else, that became my mission is I see all this noise out there. I see how frustrated people are and it makes them just want to turn it off and give up. I mean, I want to be that source of truth. And I will lean into things that sometimes Western medicine may say, is that real or not? We don't know. Let's look at, you know, Eastern medicine and integrative medicine, holistic, and let's lean into all of that in the role of nutrition to give you the information and what is the evidence behind it and to be that trusted source for you to make your life healthier, better and easier and still keep it fun. Keep it entertaining. Health does not have to be sterile. It can feel like we're having a conversation. How can I do that? So now I do that for COVID. That is my mission. That is my goal for people. And we need that so much now. I mean, thank you so much for, thank you for taking the time to join me today and to, to be here, but thank you for the work you're doing. I mean, now more than ever, we do need this sort of positivity and science-based education and just 
we need what you're doing. So thank you for doing it. Thank you so, so much. It's my pleasure. It's, it's been really fun. Even that mask video, seeing people's comments on it, it's gotten thousands and thousands of views in just a little bit of time. So it's clearly resonating. And I love hearing people's questions because that way I know where we need to go next. So Tim, thank you for all you're doing. Thank you for having me. And uh, please, I'd love to engage with your followers, your listeners. Tell them, feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening to We're Only Human. Before you go, I would love to know what you had for breakfast this morning. Just send me an email, tim at we'reonlyhumanpodcast.com, and let me know what you had for breakfast this morning. Thanks.